Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. David Gushy, so glad to finally have you here. I have been aware of your books for some years now, and I've been kind of uh, hoping for an excuse to get you on. And I, I came across this article of yours that I will link in the notes. You know, it's called "The Deconstruction of American Evangelicalism," but really, it's it's a it's a brief article about sort of the new phase of scholarship around evangelicalism in academia. And I thought it was just a very cool angle. And it relates to some other stuff that you've written from a more autobiographical perspective. And so I just think it's a perfect time to have you on. I'm glad to have you here. Well, thanks for the invitation, Dan. Well, I want to start with, let's just get like a tiny bit of your background. So where are you sort of situated within the Christian tradition and what's kind of been your, what's kind of been your world for the last, let's say 20 years or so? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a very Southern and very Baptist world. I was raised Catholic left it behind as a adolescent, never really gave it a fair chance, I think. I had a Southern Baptist conversion experience as a 16-year-old, very powerful conversion experience. Uh, plunged literally into the Southern Baptist communion with baptism and uh, all, you know, in church every time the doors were open. So I became a born-again Southern Baptist as a high schooler, you know, went to Southern Baptist seminary in the 80s, got a master's degree, Got a PhD in Christian ethics at Union in New York, 
And then, which was much more liberal school, I've, I've been employed at three Baptist schools in the South, each one having its own challenges and then great differences. I first taught at Southern Baptist Seminary in the mid-90s, where the school was in the midst of making a hard right turn. So I lasted just three years there. The women in ministry issue was the crusher uh, at that time. Then I, I landed at Union University in a little town in West Tennessee called Jackson and worked there for 11 years. Union was still very Southern Baptist and very evangelical. And, you know, on, you know, I fit in a lot of ways, but the more visible I got on social ethical issues that were where the stands that I took were not conservative, the more I got people mad at me. So the two of those issues were torture after 9-11 and climate change. In 2007, Mercer came and found me and said, we want you to come here. We'll give you this title, Distinguished University Professor, which is cool. Hell yeah. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. That's a nice title. Um, you know, reduced teaching load. You know, we want you to be a, kind of our feature back, you know, like football. Right. And so I, I came to Mercer here in Georgia in 2007. So that's where I've been since then. Uh, I teach uh, college students and seminary students. And Mercer is a post-Southern Baptist school. Actually, the Southern Baptists kicked Mercer out in 2006 over LGBT. Actually, what it was about was whether the school would have an LGBTQ support group. That was the issue in 2006. Wow. Um, wow. You know, but I guess the tensions have been going for a while. So sure. in terms of my church practice, you know, I was in Southern Baptist churches, but when I moved to Atlanta, I joined uh, a more moderate Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is the name of the denomination, one of the offshoots of the SBC. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the kind of church that I joined. Um, and then they got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention of Georgia uh, for having a woman pastor. So that issue came back. But I've also reconnected to the Catholic Church. My wife is Catholic, and so I do both. So I would say regular Catholic practice has, has been an interesting wrinkle in my story in the last few years. It's affected my theology a little bit in some good ways, I think. Yeah. So my daily life is teaching college students and seminary students, do a lot of lecturing and speaking and do a lot of writing. So, yeah. Excellent. Well, I hope to circle back to some of those autobiographical bits when we come around to your book, Still Christian, the subtitle of which is Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism, which I think will be very cool to touch on after we've sort of laid some of this scholarship framework and how the, the picture has shifted. So I want to start with the first line of your article, which is, quote, we are witnessing at this moment the intellectual deconstruction of a religious group that has been called evangelicalism. Illusions about this community are being destroyed left and right. Can you just unpack that sentence for us mm -hmm. in a few more sentences? Uh, that's that's quite a quite a provocative line, I think. I'm sure your editors were quite happy with you for starting <laughs> out with such a bang. <laughs> uh, it, again, it gets eyeballs, right? But I mean, I really believe it. In the last five years, there has been an explosion of books that are by mainly church historians, a lot of them coming out of the evangelical community themselves, who are saying, you know, evangelical self-understanding has been theological. It's been based on supposed doctrinal beliefs that supposedly center evangelical identity. But these, these deconstructionist kinds of books have been taking aim at other 
very salient dimensions of how at least white evangelicalism in America has functioned. And so it's a new generation of scholarship that is saying, if you really want to know what evangelicalism in America is, don't look at the historic, you know, kind of theological definitions. Look at the way of life of white evangelicals in such areas as patriarchy and race and things like that. It's been quite a, a wave of very skeptical literature about what evangelicalism really is in America. Really quick, because this has come up on the Facebook group at least once. Can you motivate for us why why do scholars, anthropologists, political commentators, etc., why do you use the term white evangelicalism rather than just saying evangelicalism, for instance? I think sometimes that can seem like maybe we're picking on certain people or whatever, but my understanding is that there are some sort of good sociological reasons to use that term. How would you answer that question? Well, it's really, the issue has bedeviled both the social scientists, like the pollsters and the sociologists who try to study who are these people, right? And the fact is that white evangelicalism is just a different phenomenon than like black evangelicalism or Latino evangelicalism or Asian evangelicalism because of the social location of the groups and because of the historic ways of being in in society and in the world with a significant difference over politics, especially white versus black. So as scholars have come to see that white evangelicalism is a different kettle of fish and is deeply affected precisely by the whiteness of the community by the historic social location of being white in America, this community has been set apart for like separate study. And the other factor that I've seen is, I mean, a lot of the most interesting literature that is being written about white evangelicalism is by black and Asian American and Latinx people who used to think of themselves as evangelicals. Yeah. And maybe their congregations that they were raised in did as well, but they have come to conclude that the very whiteness here, whiteness understood not as a skin color, but as a way of being in the world, right? Yeah, whiteness um, insofar, whiteness as the construct that European immigrants fit into, but like, for instance, the Irish didn't fit into for a while, and the Italians didn't fit into for a right. while, and the Jews didn't fit into for a while, but eventually those groups made their way in uh, as opposed to people of color. Right. Um, And that's what the interesting thing about it is like, it's not, it's not, it's not ethnically consistent over time who counts as white, which is why people say it's not a racial term. It's a, it's basically a sociocultural term. It, It is. Yeah. And a lot of good scholars are kind of tracing the development of that, but to the extent that white hegemony, whiteness as socially constructed and white power in America has a number of toxic dimensions to it. Basically, the idea is that that toxicity has come to uh, affect, if not dominate, what we now think of as white evangelicalism. And so that's, that's part of what's being deconstructed in these books. You write that those illusions, right, the illusions about the community that are being destroyed left and right by this new wave of scholarship you say that that those illusions already were eroding in practice. So if we're going to call the scholarship theory, right? So yeah. before the theory caught up, those illusions about what this community was were already being eroded in practice. What do you mean by that? Experiences of people 
that were disillusioning at least, traumatizing or shattering at most, right? Yeah. So the black teenager who gets converted on a white church's evangelistic campaign, and then when he or she tries to actually become a regular participating member in that congregation, discovers the racism is very deep and they're not really welcome, right? Hmm. Uh, or uh, young women who have been negatively affected by what's called purity culture or by the cover-up of sexual abuse on the part of these very powerful white pastors, you know, these pastors. Of course, that's not just a racial phenomenon. That's that's a that's a patriarchal phenomenon, yeah. a power phenomenon. And so, you know, traumatized exiles. So that's kind of what I'm saying is that, or people who in 2000, 2008 discovered that if they were interested in voting for Barack Obama, they had people in the church who said that they were going to hell. Right. Yeah. And and so the, the way the politics have gotten so partisan and, and, and so definitive of identity. And so what I'm saying is, hey, you know, you go to the website of the National Association of Evangelicals and they will use the David Bevington quadrilateral of what it, how you define an evangelical mental, and, and, you know, theologically. But that if you actually go to the churches, sometimes what seems more definitive is something like patriarchy, power race, uh, politics. And so, so that needs to be dealt with honestly. And these books are doing that. I think it's interesting too, that you're trained as an ethicist because, you know, there's sort of the, there are the obvious ethical differences between, let's just say conservative Christianity and more liberal mainstream culture around climate change, abortion, maybe gun rights, stuff like that, religious freedom. Right. But (laughs) the Trump thing sort of showed just how much of a veneer the family values ethics stuff really was. I mean, apparently was that, you know, all the hand wringing over Bill Clinton was like ultimately meaningless. Like we'll take a Bill Clinton as long as he's our Bill Clinton and uh, Trump, you know, Bill Clinton (laughs) in terms of their uh, family values, they they are probably roughly similar. I don't know. They're, they're both pretty bad dudes in, in, or were, you know, Clinton was in his heyday and Trump certainly is. But that's an interesting, that's kind of like, I see it as sort of the last straw for a lot of people, especially younger people who don't have, but, but actually I've, I've talked to tons of boomers and Gen Xers as well that, that were maybe on the fence, one foot in, one foot out. And then they were like, you got to be kidding me uh at that point right and that was sort of like the veil dropped at that point yeah. it was like oh this has been bullshit okay right. well at least now we know that so that that's another thing i think of when the illusions eroded in practice in yeah. addition to the the sort of more interpersonal and discrimination based kind of stuff that you're talking about that, that's absolutely right the, it's not accidental that this flood of books has been written in the last three to five years right it's yeah. i I mean, I've been studying this stuff for a while, and I mean, there have been various kinds of uh, critiques of white evangelicalism, but nothing like this. I think, and you use the word, I think you use the word veil. I think Trump has been apocalyptic exactly in the sense of unveiling. Um, Apocalypsis means unveiling. And the, (laughs) you say, you said it more directly than I ever have. Oh, so I thought like being an evangelical was about like, serious personal morality or mm-hmm. holiness. Remember that word holiness, you know, 
Uh, that's kind of the, what I was initiated into as a born again Southern Baptist, you know, sexual morality and you don't yeah. cuss and you keep your promises and and you tell everybody about Jesus, right? All that. This guy is the antithesis of all of that. And 84% of white evangelicals are with him anyway. And that has been deeply disillusioning for people. But I think that can be understood as well. And I've written about how, how evangelicals got there, as have several of these books. Yeah, I think that these books basically, Trump is the phenomenon that they need to be able to explain with their model. Whatever their particular model is, it needs to account for Trump. And we're going to get to each of those books, or at least briefly talk about a number yeah. of them, as well as talk about like whether they can all be true or if there's tension between the various analyses. Mm. But but first, let's talk about something which you you briefly mentioned, which is this is the the way that the old guard of scholarship defined evangelicalism. You mentioned David Bebbington, who gave a theological definition that yeah remains sort of part of the self-understanding and self-proclaimed identity of a lot of evangelical institutions. Can, can you walk us through that Bebbington sure. uh, definition of evangelicalism? Yeah. You know, you've arrived when, you know, you come up with something that like everybody then quotes, and especially when it gets on the doctrinal page of something like the National Association of Evangelicals, man, he, basically he became, it's like the Nicene Creed. David Bebbington created the Nicene Creed, you know, for <laughs> modern day evangelicals. The, the Bebbington quadrilateral was, Biblicism, crucicentrism, activism. Oh, what was the fourth? Uh, conversionism, uh, I conversionism, think. Conversionism, that's yeah. right, yeah. Um, and so how do you know an evangelical? An evangelical believes in the fill-in-the-blank, infallibility, inerrancy, uh, authority of the Bible, right? Yeah. An evangelical believes that the central act of history and of God in relation to the world was the cross, which saves and alone saves, Evangelicals believe that all are called to convert. And so this is the kind of a personal conversion. You don't just inherit your faith. You must convert. So it's, yeah. So very Baptist friendly there. Yeah, in that, sense. that is yeah. very Baptist. In fact, he's a Baptist. I actually preached at his church in Scotland uh, a couple of years ago. That was interesting. Mm -hmm. He wasn't there, but that would have been an interesting dialogue. And then activism is basically his thumbnail for that the Christian life is a life of active, lived discipleship, you know, 24-7. You know, there's a missionary imperative, but there's also kind of a personal walk with Jesus imperative, right? Yeah. What's what's interesting about that is that is essentially the version of Christianity that I was inscribed into when I became a Southern Baptist in 1978. It's know? also the kind that I was brought into in the 90s in non-denominational California evangelicalism. I mean, that is a very good description. So when I first read the Bebbington Quadrilateral, I was like, I recognize that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's where that's where I come from. But what's yeah. so interesting is like by October 2016, there was uh some very good polling. I, I think it was Lifeway, but it might have been Barna. And it was they used that definition. I think because one of them uses that as their polling mm. definition of an evangelical mm. for doing sort of the theologically tinged uh reporting that they do. And, you know, by the way, this is an evangelical organization. This is not, yeah. uh, not the New York Times or Pew or whatever. And th when they polled people, they found that white people who ascribed to those four things and basically said, you know, strongly agree or whatever, whatever their sort of definition was, they were supported Trump at 80%. And black Christians who also checked all four of those boxes with strongly agree were for Clinton 90%. <laughs> 
And so what they really showed was, I mean, to me, to my mind, that's as definitive as it gets, that politics is unmoored from those four distinctives. So what I was yeah. raised to believe is that those four, they wouldn't have said these are our four distinctives, right. but the, the distinctives of our faith, this is the center of our being from which all else flows. Our commitment to the cross as the definitive moment in human history, our personal conversion to that salvation, our focus on our daily reading of the Bible, weekly study of the Bible, our activism, which is not usually perceived as political activism, but like pietism, uh, you know, our, our devotional life and our evangelistic efforts to our friends and neighbors and the wider world. This is who we are. That's who we are. Everything else comes from that. Lo and behold, not true. Your politics comes from your skin color. Because if you are black and believe those things, you vote for Hillary Clinton. And if you're white and believe those things, you vote for Donald Trump. So those things basically have no causal power, even all four of them combined, which you would think that's a bunch of very central things to hold. And yet it has, you know, the the correlation between those four things and politics is essentially nil. It's basically zero. And so... That was incredible to read that reporting around yeah. that time. And that was for me, the scales totally, you yeah. know, that, that was the final moment of the scales falling from my eyes. What's interesting is I think this is more of a U.S. American problem than it is anywhere else in the world. Interesting. When I encounter evangelicals in other places, that complete disconnect does, you know, does not appear to be doesn't function in the same way. It just doesn't exist in the same way. So there's something about what has happened here in our polarization, in our, our history of racism. That's part of it. Yeah. One thing I wanted to add is the the people who define the study of evangelicalism from the 1970s through at least the 2000s were all evangelical men, white evangelical men, historians like Mark Knoll, and Nathan Hatch, and George Marston, and David Bevington. And they were loyal to the tribe, right? And they wrote sympathetically, uh, not uncritically, but they wrote sympathetically uh, about this people. It does beg this question. I mean, in our experience, we both just attest that that definition of what it meant to be an evangelical seems salient at one point. Oh, yes. So the question is, did it change? Has it been corrupted over the last 20 years or was it always only part of the story? That's the interesting question. That is the interesting question. Yeah, because a a good angle of analysis here would be, all right, take your Trumpist aunts and uncles or whomever who are still firmly in the white evangelical camp. Do their lives actually contradict any of those four items or have they found a way, is it basically there's just, it's a, it's a non-permeable membrane between those things and their sociopolitical identity. I mean, nothing about voting for supporting, full-throatedly supporting Donald Trump. I'm just doing this in real time here off the top of my right. head. Uh, you could still believe that the cross is the central thing. Right. You might have to... You might have to wiggle around a little bit on whether Trump is a Christian, but you might not even care if he's a Christian. 
certainly you can still read your Bible all the time. You would maybe not want to read too much about (laughs) personal morality again. You know, I don't know. You might have to pick and choose a little bit. Activism, I mean, certainly you just, you're just shifting what it is you're active about or you, you slightly do that. And then the other one is conversion. Again, you might just, you might have to tell yourself a story about Trump, but you might not care if he's a Christian. You might still think that that stuff's important. But as I say this out loud, and I, I'd love, I want to get your thoughts, like it also strikes me that like the things that those Trumpy Christians tend to talk about, post about, whatever, that focus does seem to have shifted away from a evangelism, personal piety kind of a vibe toward a culture war embattled yeah. persecution complex that kind of a vibe which is in mm-hmm. some conflict but but might not be enough where they would actually they would still check all the same boxes on a survey i guess is what i'm saying right yeah i think that one of the things we've seen is that the survey whatever is possible to catch on a survey at least until survey questions started being asked differently by people like robbie jones of public religion research right former guest the checklist of questions didn't capture the reality, you know, and, and, and those four categories don't capture the reality. I mean, the big the big yawning issue here is biblicism. Okay, so which part of the Bible? Uh, which account of Jesus? How much attention to the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, how about right. the prophets, right? So in my After Evangelicalism book, I, I go directly to, I think, I think that the version of or the versions of Jesus that are functioning in white evangelicalism are not good enough, right? They're problematic. Hmm. And that however scripture is functioning, it's not taking you to the kind of non-negotiable moral commitments that ought to to shape politics, right? You know, justice, compassion, dignity, mercy, peacemaking. So biblicism was always too thin. There was a a lot assumed about what how people were reading the Bible. And and as for the cross, even there, uh, there was a lot assumed about what version of salvation and how it relates to this world is being understood, right? So I think a major problem with evangelicalism as a movement, and and after evangelicalism, I say it was born as a movement in the 1940s, quite intentionally in the U.S., as an effort to reform fundamentalism, but also to clearly delineate the difference from mainline liberalism. And as people like Carl Henry and Harold John Ockengay and people, people of that era, they, it was always fairly theologically thin because they were trying to build a mega coalition of, of theologically conservative Protestants. And so they could not allow ecclesiological differences or theological differences to get in the way of their big project. Right. And so I think that theological thinness in the evangelical movement may have helped, may have left a vacuum that that was then filled by politics um, in the 70s. I also think this, I think that the version of evangelicalism, well, it was Southern Baptist, they didn't know they were evangelicals, they were Southern Baptists, right? Uh, but the version of that kind of Christianity that I was exposed to, they still believed in what they called the Great Commission. They believed that Yes, Christians are supposed to change the world, but the way Christians change the world is through personal example, evangelism, and missions. It was 1978. The Christian right was really born in 1979. 
that was when people like Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson said, actually, you know, the way we're going to change the world is by getting into bed with the Republican Party, by influencing them and by wielding our power within that party. I think it's that fundamental decision, which both I think represented a despair about the moral influence and evangelism strategy, but it, it helped to sow the seeds of this radical deterioration into evangelical MAGAism that we have been witnessing over these years. Yeah, that's great. So you mentioned earlier that the old school vanguard of evangelical scholarship were all historians. One of the things that's interesting with this new crop of scholarship is they're not all historians, right? There there are a couple historians, uh, but it's not the only discipline being uh, being brought to bear on uh, scholarship. So, so what else are we now sort of – what other lenses is this new crop of scholars using? Um, in the, the books that I mentioned in the uh, piece that you read in uh, Baptist News Global, Kristen Dumay is a historian – from Calvin College. Beth Barr is a historian of medieval, medieval historian from Baylor. Um, so that's two very different types of emphasis, but they're both historians. Jamar Tisby is also a historian. He's a historian and getting his PhD now, as I recall, right? Yeah. Uh, may, uh, he might've gotten it, but yeah, maybe, he's right yeah. around there. Yeah. Uh, he's a black historian. And so a different set of lenses. Whitehead and Perry of the book, Taking America Back for God, they are sociologists, Yeah. right? And Thea Butler of the book, White Evangelical Racism, I believe, is she's a religious studies professor, I think theologian, I think is her training. Robbie Jones was, was trained in history, I believe, but has evolved, you know, in this kind of... Basically political science. Political now. science yeah. direction, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so and I wonder who else I, I have not named everybody. There's worldview theory, whiteness, and the future yeah, of evangelical that's Jay faith. Cook. He was, uh, he was one of my students. He was trained as an ethicist. Yeah. He's, he's essentially a theological ethicist. Isaac Sharp of Union is also a theological ethicist. So I think the grid that is being applied is broader. Um, it's more critical. But I would say one thing they have in common, almost all these people, I, I don't know Whitehead and Perry, but almost all these people are post-evangelicals themselves. They have yeah. been in the community and they know whereof they speak. They have a feel for it. And they're bringing um, a critical eye based on not just their experiences, but their experiences are helping to inform the questions they're asking. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know the personal faith story of all of them. You know, Robert P. Jones identifies as a Christian, attends a Unitarian church with his wife who identifies as Jewish. I know that, but I know Jamar Tisby and Kristen Dumay are practicing Christians. They just Mm -hmm. have left evangelicalism. My understanding is most of these are, are self-identified Christians. So, in the sense, evangelicals might perceive them as coming from the outside and attacking them as traitors or whatever. But in terms of Christian faith, I mean, obviously they're doing academic work where that's not, it's not supposed to be influencing the work much, but it is, it's worth noting that they're not coming from outside the church primarily. Is that your sense as well? Absolutely. These are not, you know, you know, Sam Harris, atheists, right? You know, these are people from within the fold. I mean, if we're to, if you were to sit down for an hour and ask them about faith journey, I mean, they've had some scalding experiences, um, but they are still devoted Christians, you know, and they're just post-evangelicals in that they have concluded, I, I couldn't say about all of them, but most of them, and this would be my story at least, have concluded that white evangelicalism is 
deeply problematic and they do not want to be identified with that religious community anymore. Whatever strengths, whatever values it has offered, um, and it has offered lovely things along the way. But yeah, they, these are not atheist skeptics of Christianity, but but evangelicals, I think the evangelical power structure feels pretty embattled right now because the, the critiques are coming from all over. And yeah. they are, this is feeding that persecution complex and the liberals hate us, you know. You know, anytime you critique evangelicalism, in my experience, you get branded as a liberal elitist who hates God or hates Christianity or something. It's just not true, you know? Yeah. Well, I like the way that your article sort of focused on, you just, you said a little bit about each of these books. Uh, the, each of them, of course, does a lot of things and includes a ton of interesting detail and analysis. But the way that you focused your article and that I want to focus our conversation is the way that each of these books, we'll just talk about them briefly, challenges that self-understanding definition of the Bebbington quadrilateral. It says, okay, I know that you guys have said that these are the four things that define you as evangelicals, but I'm going to challenge that and say it's actually something else that defines you. And then after we get through them, we're going to talk about how well these various explanations can actually be held to in tension with each other or how, you know, that's an interesting question. But but first, let's go through them. So let's start with Jesus and John Wayne, Kristen Dumay. This has been a massive a New York Times bestseller. I, I've had, I don't know, 30 people tell me that they were reading it maybe in the last <laughs> two years or something. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's made its way around. So what is her argument? She says, no, it's not the Bebbington quadrilateral. It's this. Her main argument is it's toxic masculinity. That is what defines evangelicalism. But along the way, she, she essentially shows evidence of, and she names, you know, ultranationalism and Islamophobia and anti-gay commitments and the whole, and then the whole, the whole, you know, right-wing Trumpist politics and stuff like that, right? But I think the heart of the book is toxic masculinity. The, jo the John Wayne, the whole title, John, the John Wayne version of what it means to be a man got conflated with what it means to be a follower of Jesus and this is rugged, aggressive, gun-toting, uh, masculinist. And she uses tremendous examples of people like Mark Driscoll and so on, and just kind of just lets the people speak, you know, uh, for for what what they were saying, you know. And I was just thinking I, about Driscoll because yeah. you know the Jesus that he always mentions is the Jesus of the Book of Revelation, who you know the Jesus of the Final Judgment riding a sword knee deep in blood, you know, or riding a horse knee deep in blood with a bloody sword. And he doesn't really mention the Sermon on the Mount very much as far as I understand him, right? I think yeah. about Wild at Heart as well, mm -hmm. the the John Eldridge mm -hmm. uh, and all the books and ministries that that came from that. I Growing up in the 90s in evangelicalism, the Braveheart clip is now uh -huh. like the joke. <laughs> Right, that that was, you know, an Erwin McManus, the barbarian way, you know, bef when he was younger and that was kind of the thing. And now I think of him as more of like a aging hipster doing something else. But like, you know, it's that sort of like, ah, the 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 manly man is the godly man. And yeah. and what we're missing is sort of a call to men to be manly in a godly way uh, yeah. that that resonates with my yeah. experience anyway. Yeah. 
And you can see a long history of what's called muscular Christianity. In fact, one of my favorite people to study, Walter Rauschenbusch, back in the early part of the 20th century with uh, social gospel, there was a fair amount of we need to mobilize warriors for Christ, you know, type type of thing there. And the worry about the feminization, so-called, of Christianity and the need for tough guys and all of that goes back a long way. But, I mean, the way when she, when Dumay really gets in the weeds related to the worst of this, she clearly shows that it has underwritten uh, cultures of male dominance and even uh, wide open paths to abusive sexuality and the mistreatment of women. And then women being socialized to submit and everything that that means, you know, uh, sexually and in family life and marriage and in church. Um, so I think that's the heart of the book. But I mean, her book starts with her subculture embracing, you know, Donald Trump there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and how shocking that was to her. And in essence, I think of that book as symbolizing the head snapping, what just happened kind of uh, experience of a lot of us who, who knew evangelicals could be pretty crazy right wing, but couldn't have imagined that Donald Trump would be the guy, you know? I really need to read that book and probably need to interview her as well. You do. Uh, staying in the kind of gender related issues, Alison Barr's Making of Biblical Womanhood. This is another book that has been recommended to me many times. Many people have told me they're reading it. I see a lot of Instagram photos of it and whatnot. What, so what's her counter argument? So you guys say you've been defined by the Bebbington quadrilateral, these four things. I say, actually, no, it's this. You've been defined by a culturally constructed, um, non-biblical teaching of female subordination. Hmm. And this teaching of female subordination, she traces 20 centuries of struggle within Christianity over female voices and female power and so on. But she, I think, clearly shows that, you know, 20th century doctrine, the doctrinalization of the idea of the gracious submission of women in every sector, that that's a doctrinal choice that was made. It is not unarguable biblically. There's plenty of counter evidence. And there are many, many moments and sectors in the history of Christianity where that wasn't the posture that was taken. So she's trying to deconstruct the idea that the clear teaching of the Bible is female submission and subordination, and to show that historically it wasn't always read that way. And I mean, and she also weaves in her own narrative of, of she and her husband being kicked out of the church that he served and the church that they and their family belonged in because they began to raise questions about that teaching. And so that's the autobiographical piece of it. Right. Yeah. Uh, can you say a little bit more about I was interested that you called it an unbiblical, a non-biblical view, right? So the, the historical tracing is interesting, but I think that the general sense that you get from complementarians, uh, which are people who believe that God created men and women differently with different roles, different power structures, hierarchically, et cetera. I think that they tend to assume that like, well, that's the obvious biblical perspective and everybody else is going along with culture or something mm -hmm. against the Bible. You, you don't have to recreate her whole argument, but can you give us some of the contours of that? Yeah, she essentially says that patriarchy was the dominant ancient Near Eastern and Greco-Roman paradigm within which Christianity was born. Yeah. But that in light of that, the egalitarian 
the egalitarian dimensions of scripture, including how Jesus treated women and the role of women in the early church and some of the teachings of Paul are actually more striking than the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. it's like if you if Jesus came in segregated America in 1900 and what he chose to do was perform black and white weddings, <laughs> right? right? Like interracial weddings. It would be like, whoa. So, okay. Jesus is like making a stand here in contrast to the sort of background noise and background assumptions, but we don't necessarily get that if we aren't super familiar with the background cultural assumptions of the time. Right. What I would tend to say is that in, in what is left in the canonical scriptures, you have conflicting trajectories. Yeah. One trajectory is egalitarian. Another trajectory is more hierarchical. You can see differences even between like Galatians 3 and like 1 Timothy, right? So I prefer, and, and I have a, a new book coming out, a new intro to Christian ethics in which I say, uh, we need to acknowledge that there are these different trajectories, but that the the egalitarian trajectory is truer to Jesus and truer to to what, you know, the overall impact of the ministry of Jesus, right? It's basically what I say. But so at least what she's trying to do is to destabilize the idea that the unequivocal, clear teaching of scripture is patriarchy, right? Yeah. And so it's not unchallengeable and she's going to challenge it. And one way she's going to challenge it is in getting into her expertise is to show how Thoughtful Christians of multiple denominations over many centuries did not all read that evidence that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so her good. claim actually is that the patriarchy is is more cultural, cultural than the egalitarianism, because the egalitarianism is, is the more distinctively gospel kind of dimension of of uh, of this narrative, right? So, right. so she, she basically says that the modern complementarians are actually the more cultural ones, if you want to have the argument in those terms. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's my favorite. My favorite response to the, you're following culture. Our uh, claim is like, oh, so Trumpism isn't culture. <laughs> right. You're right. not following that culture. Isn't that right. culture like pretty popular right now? And we're <laughs> in your part of the neck of the woods. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's move to race. So you, you mentioned mm -hmm. three or four books, I think, but uh, let's just focus for now on the color of compromise by Jamar Tisby. I'm a big fan of, of his work and his podcast, Pass the Mic. And so what's his alternative to, well, evangelicalism is defined by these four, these four items. He says no, or maybe he, uh, maybe he's not exactly challenging the self-identified definition, but what does his analysis get at uh, well, in terms of that? If, let me do a broader picture. A book that, I don't remember the name of the book, but there's a, a real serious religious historian named Paul Harvey, who is a, who is a specialist on like evangelicalism in the American South. I didn't put that in this article because it goes back further. It's a little bit of a different book, but there's a line in Harvey that I always will remember. He said, evangelicalism and racism grew up together in the 19th, you know, 18th and 19th century, but he's thinking especially of the 19th century American South so that they were so intertwined that they could not be disentangled. Wow. And that there were opportunities along the way, especially like with the Great Awakenings, you know, the revivalist movements and so on. There were these moments where people challenged the slavery and the racism and said, you know, the implications of this experience of God's spirit and God's power that we are witnessing, we need to repent of this. And sometimes there'd be these brief inroads and then the 
the racist power structure would snap back and say, no, this is not changeable. And so what is the compromise? Gospel Christianity has been compromised by white supremacism, slavery, segregationism, Jim Crow, racism all along. It is fundamentally intertwined. And if you look at the history in general, white evangelical Christians, especially in the South, but not only, have tended to stand against movements for racial equality and an end to systematic racism. There's some new books coming out. I just saw some, I, I couldn't tell you the titles, but related to, I'm just documenting the awful stands of white evangelicals during the civil rights movement. You know, we've known this, but you know, the way I was taught was something more like, you know, white evangelicals had a blind spot in this area, but they're making some progress. Mm-hmm. But you know, now the story is more like, no, the, the through line is racism. And the gospel of Jesus and God's love for all equally in Jesus has not been able to overcome the racism. It's interesting because I think that, say, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, when Clinton and Biden and, you know, most Democrats were also engaged in basically like promoting racist crime bills, Mm -hmm. there was probably a lot more cover in terms of this, right? That it wasn't it wasn't so obvious that like, oh, all the evangelicals, like today, it's like, oh, and of course they're afraid of critical race theory. Like, because the people on that side of the aisle who identify this way religiously are always against these kinds of things. And it has become, because of the polarization and because of, I mean, I would say general progress on this issue, at least in terms of the way that that we could get half of America at least, at least in theory, in support of these kind of procedures, that's an improvement on 1995, right? Right. It's an improvement on 1975 in the middle of white flight to the suburbs yeah. away from the urban centers. So yeah. this is one where it, it does seem like the polarization in our lived experience as Americans today actually makes Tisby and these other guys' arguments make more sense to us. They would have been harder to see back when it was more mainstream as just white Americans, Democrat or Republican, to have some of these racist views around, for instance, stuff like crime and, and prison policy. Yeah. But unfortunately, that polarization also means that a lot of people's minds are turned off to taking this seriously because it, you know, it has gotten tied into the polarization and that's the enemy and all of that, right? 100%. You know? Exactly. You know, yeah. so it's like climate change, in my view, as soon as that became a partisan issue, you're going to have, you know, 49.9 or 47.3% yep. of the people who are just against it, right? Because yep. that's what they care about. And, you know, the, the Republican Southern strategy of the 1960s contributed to this. I mean, in the 70s, they decided... They had a massive constituency just waiting for them, Southern white people, if they could blow the, the dog whistles in yeah, just the just right way. Yeah, just know? racist enough. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Know, so this then became a partisan thing. But of course, nobody ever wants to admit that they're racist. And so everything is swathed in illusions and self-deceptions and arguments over yeah. specific policies and and mm-hmm. you know and those people you know the kkk people who just happened to join that march they were they're the aberration you know i think what's there's you know there's a broader thing I, i've noticed a couple of recent books on the kkk i used to 
subscribe to more of a discontinuity understanding. There was that awful racist past, but we're getting beyond it. That appears harder to sustain right now. That more of the continuity, there's this awful racist past. It looked like we might be getting beyond it, but we're not. And what these books are saying is right in the middle of not being able to get beyond it are white Christians, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's so interesting. One, one thing that's very hard to pull apart that I'm very interested in trying to pull apart is which has more of the causality, right? Is it racist kind of fear? Cause I think racism is ultimately my, my sort of, you know, personal anecdotal guess is that it is mostly driven by fear of various kinds. One, one such fear being, I'm afraid that my family will fall into the kind of poverty and lower status of the average black family. And so I don't want that to happen. So I will make choices that keep my family away from that, that end up contributing to systemically racist systems. So is it the fear? Is it for some people, is it just that they are like personality wise and naturally conservative? And this is the main flavor that is on offer to them. This is basically vanilla. Uh, and everything else is just like flavors added to vanilla base, you know, like, I don't know. Here's another book on the list. This is a good chance to segue to that book. Yeah. Uh, Whitehead and Perry in their book, Taking America Back from God. The title that that they give for the phenomenon is Christian nationalism. Um, I think that's an unfortunate sketch. I think, I mean, it would have been more awkward, but I think that the summary, and I said this in the article, it's white Christian nationism. Hmm. Okay, I think that's more explanatory, uh, more descriptive in this way. They find, and Robbie Jones is finding the stuff in some of his polling. He's asking wicked good questions, and it's revealing wicked bad news, right? Yeah. The paradigm is the United States of America is by right, maybe even by God's design, this is the paradigm, a white Christian nation, hmm. period. Okay. It's to be dominated by white people. It's to be dominated by Christian people. And this is the nation that we that we must protect. White okay. Christian nationism, where like yeah. the ism comes at the end of white Christian nation. It's all of that. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. And then hash and then dash ism. Right. Yeah. So that's what God really wants. And of course we would never say that it's out loud, but what God really wants is a white Christian nation. And that's what we are, and that's our job to uh -huh. preserve that. And, and well, Robbie and asking Robbie Jones, I call him Rob because we're all friends, but in, yeah. in asking some of these questions, he's identifying people who just say yes to these questions in polls. I mean, it's like, and the, it's, it's surprising percentage and Perry and Whitehead are doing the same thing. Right. So, you know, when you look at our history, it shouldn't be that surprising. <laughs> you know, it's like some of the hopeful illusions of the 1960s and 1970s that I was raised with They're They're all being shattered right now. So you have to go back further. Um, I'd love to quote this line from Franklin Roosevelt. You can Google it. There are different versions of it. But apparently at one time in, during his presidency, he said to two cabinet members, one of whom was Catholic, one of whom was Jewish, and they were challenging him about something. He said, this is a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country. Everyone else is here by sufferance. Hmm. Franklin Roosevelt, social justice, democratic president, author of the New Deal. But he was also a New York aristocrat. So only thing that really changed there, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, the Protestant piece 
you know, it broadened out. Other people could be grafted into that. But yeah. take that out and just go with this is a white Christian nation. Everyone else is here by sufferance. So this would this if this is what people actually believe deep in their gut somewhere or actually want this. This explains this explains a lot. Uh, we're yeah. going to do we're going to do some things on race, racial inclusion, but not enough to destabilize white power. Right. 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 You know, and then we're maybe we're going to admit some immigrants, but we're going to prefer certain kinds of immigrants and not enough immigrants to displace white power in terms of the power structures of towns and such. Right. Mm-hmm. And of the country as a whole. And, you know, maybe we'll vote, allow you all to have one black president, but there's not going to be another one anytime soon, you know, and. So it's a moral imagination of white supremacism. The thing is, it isn't just a white nationism. It's a white Christian nationism. But here the word Christian now means something different. It's nothing like biblicism, crucicentrism. It's an ethnic identity. Hmm. It's like Christian here as opposed to Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, atheist to steel man those people with that view it it does seem to me to be an ethical position it's like and the laws and norms that seems to me to be for a lot of people the motivating energy behind it is like i want to live i want my country to be a place where people are dressed modestly they don't get pregnant early they don't have abortions they don't do drugs a lot of it is it's very hard for me to separate away from just like conservative parenting ideals and, and fear about, you know, my kid's going to move to New York city. They're going to get AIDS and they're uh-huh. going to die, you know, or they're going to get pregnant and ruin their young life or, you know, it's, it is a kind of a ethical and moral golden age seeking kind of a thing. I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? I think that that is a strand, you know, and it was more visibly a strand in the early days of the Christian right, right. family values, anti-abortion, anti-divorce. Divorce used to be a big deal to people, right? You know, yeah. um, trying to re- trying to reduce sex out of marriage and reduce the number of pregnancies out of out of marriage and all of that. And I do think that there's a you know that is still there. Uh, abortion is is a is a major piece of that. But there's no question that the the pure ethnocentric and xenophobic piece of that is is just as real, maybe more real right now. Especially if you look at the Trumpist thing, Trump never, not even nodded in the direction of that earlier set of agendas. You know, you know the oh, <laughs> we want to clean up the morality of America. It was never that, right? Um, right. But you know, the you know shithole countries, and you know they're sending their rapists and you know law and order stuff. It was it was the it was the race card, pure and simple. So, but I think that's all gotten mixed in there together in a real toxic group. Yeah. One way I think of this is that it gives people who are afraid of pluralism a a tribe to join that's kind of ready-made for them. And you could be afraid of any kind of pluralism if it's religious pluralism, ethnic pluralism. Mm-hmm. But just like a changing, expanding world, if that freaks you out, and there are many reasons that might freak someone out, they're Mm -hmm. not all sin issues. Some of them are. Some of them are just personality. People who don't like to go to other countries when they vacation, you know, like they're not that interested in it. It gives you kind of a ready-made package that you can just join into and ascribe to. 
and it it's it's one, and it's like one size fits all fears of pluralism and yeah. somehow christianity the, the the interesting so that's normal insofar as every single country in the world has political parties whether they are two party or parliamentary systems mm-hmm. they have political parties that are basically anti change anti-pluralism, let's keep things the way they've been. That's like a fundamental personality construct that some people are going to fit into. Right. That's Mm -hmm. fine. I think probably we need that to help balance what I am, which is like supremely open to, you know, diversity and new, I want to try every food. I'd like to visit every country if I could in theory. And I need someone who's like, well, hold on, pump the brakes. Like let's Let's make sure we're doing this wisely or, you know, it works out in the wash. But what's so sad for Christians like myself is, but, but how did the religion of Jesus, who's like explicitly expanding the boundaries, basically every chance he gets gender wise, ethnicity wise. Oh, who's my neighbor? It's the good Samaritan. It's the slave, you know, like it's the, like, it's all the people in the out group for you. That's the part that's so maddening is how did that get part of this ready-made package for anybody who's naturally conservative in a personnel, in like an amoral personality sense, right? One interesting thing that has been shown by historians of like slavery in this country is that it didn't take long for the identity Christian to become associated with whiteness. Hmm. And with American. So, I mean, it goes back to like census categories and such, you know, so. So, in other words, if you were a white citizen, with rare exceptions, you were assumed to be Christian. And if you were somebody of another color, you were assumed to be heathen, pagan or other. Right. Yeah. So this identification of whiteness, Americanism and Christianity goes back centuries. But I I mean, I think that progressive forces for hundreds of years have been trying to break that and say, no, they've got to have to have a different definition, both of Americanism and of Christianity. And that is failing right now. And so for Jesus to be identified, well, for Christianity to be identified with every anti-pluralist movement, with ethnocentrism and uh, prejudice, um, and just backward or, okay, backward, that's too strong, reactionary posture. Yeah, yeah. Has nothing to do with Jesus. And I actually think I've seen some people uh, come up with some new phrases like ethno-populist Christianism. You know, it's it's not Christianity. Christianism. Christianism. Yeah, because, but you're getting at the fact, like, this is a global, in some senses, this is a global trend. I mean, all the European countries have these Christian, right-wing Christian parties. They're mm-hmm. smaller over there than they are here, but... Since World War II, the Christian population of those countries is smaller in most countries, maybe a few exceptions like Poland or whatever. But, you know, that's like, that's weird to me. (laughs) How can it be like, what explains that? Like, have you read the Gospels? It just doesn't, you know, and I, that in some sense, that is like, that is the question that I want Christian sociologists and other social scientists to help me understand because- and I, I mean, you're 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 gesturing at it right now, I guess. You know, my my uh, newest set of research questions is exactly right there. Um, I'm going to be inaugurated as chair in Christian social ethics at the Free University of Amsterdam in late January. 
Wow. And and what they do in a, in that school is the old uh, classic paradigm. Uh, you give an inaugural address. Hmm. And my inaugural address is called Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. And I think for that European audience, especially, it'll be important to show that this kind of ethno-populist, xenophobic Christianism is a, is a worldwide phenomenon with fervent Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant examples. Oh, yeah. All oh, yeah. over the world. Yeah, the Russian Orthodox Church is a particularly egregious example of uh, this in the last Christians, couple yeah, decades. Christians being identified with really militant, anti-everything type politics, right? Yeah. And I want to understand better the historical roots of that and why why that's a global phenomenon. I have some ideas. What I think is happening is that the U.S. is now trending, especially on the right, in the exact same trajectory as places like Russia and Poland and Hungary and so on. And I think that's the most interesting thing about Trump's connection to Eastern Europe. It's not, you know, KGB support or something, you know, it's, I think he represents that mentality. Wow. Well, I might have to have you back on to discuss that once you've done that research, because that is one of my, that's probably my most burning Christian sociological question. Yeah. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Christian worldview and then your book and its counter argument to the Bebbington quadrilateral. Subscribers to the Patreon campaign get two exclusive episodes per month in addition to these main feed episodes. And the one that's coming in the next couple of days, I did what we called an incarnation celebration live Q&A with Trip Fuller of the Homebrewed Christianity Podcast, Dustin Kensrue of the band Thrice, uh, Sari Martin Concepcion of our Big Five friend group, and Sarah Lane Ritchie, theologian who you've heard on this show many times. And we took questions from listeners, um, and that is going out to the patron group for You Have Permission, as well as Homebrewed Christianity's group. So if you are signed up for either, you will be hearing that in the next couple days. If you'd like to hear that, uh, it's like pretty long. It's like a two and a half hour episode. Got a little silly at times. Uh, that will be up soon. And and any of the other previous patron episodes, you can join at patreon.com slash Dan Coke. There's a link in the show notes that also gives you access to the Facebook group, which is for patrons only an incredible online community that has developed around this show. All right, guys, back to my conversation with David. Man, David, I can't believe it's taking me so long to get you on the podcast, but I'm glad you're here now. And also thanks for agreeing to go a little bit longer because there's so much to get into here and it's so interesting. So uh, let's resume talking about these new books. The next one is Worldview Theory, Whiteness and the Future of Evangelical Faith. Uh, And this Christian worldview language is language that I am super familiar with. I would almost say I'm triggered by it now (laughs) because I've sort of learned what it means, you know, or I've come to see what it actually means. Uh, And it is the, it is probably my least favorite kind of pseudo intellectualism within white Christianity. But tell, tell us about this book and how it challenges the classic uh, understanding of what separates evangelicalism from other types of Christianity. I am proud to say that I was uh, one of the readers of this when it was a dissertation. The author is named uh, Jacob Cook. He 
uh, studied with me at Mercer and studied with Glenn Stassen, my friend and colleague at uh, Fuller. And this was his dissertation. It's brilliant, Dan, it really is. What he does is to examine certain major figures in the trajectory of evangelicalism. And uh, three of them are Abraham Kuyper, Harold John Akige, and Richard Mao. And he notices a tendency on the part of all of them to speak the language of Christian worldview. Hmm. And probably probably a lot of your listeners, uh, if they came to evangelicalism, they ran into Christian worldview at some point. Oh, yeah. Christ- Christian worldview conferences, uh, Christian worldview seminars, Christian worldview classes, or the or if you're in the Christian college world, for a lot of schools, this was an organizing category. We are trying to teach a Christian worldview. Oh yeah, you know, against secularism and all those other bad you know worldviews, right? Yeah, it's all kinds of curricula, right? Will right. contain that in their and if there's a one sentence description, it's in the one sentence description of the this curricula's reason for existing. Right. The book contains, you know, analysis of what these guys have actually taught or did actually teach. And he is able to show that a lot of what they projected, especially the older figures, Akinge and Kuiper. What they projected as the Christian worldview looks an awful lot like hegemonic European white colonialism, imperialism. You know, Akinge was was doing God and country nationalism in the 40s and 50s and was very lukewarm about the civil rights movement. You know, Kuiper had the whole imperialist vision going, you know, and you just have to read the analysis. So the naivete behind all of this was the idea that if we can just think rightly and get all of our categories lined up just so, we can have a kind of a God's eye view of the world and we can classify every discipline, every scholar, every culture, every religion, every set of ideas according to our worldview grid. And meanwhile, we ourselves can be confident that we have the Christian worldview and that it has not been damaged by alien elements like, say, nationalism or racism or, or sexism or white supremacy or anything like that. And so Jake shows that there is no such God's eye view and that a lot of what has passed for uh, worldview is really an awful lot of pretty familiar kind of whiteness stuff. And so we're going to have to find ways to construct Christian identity that does that does not rely on this high confidence in our own capacity to screen out sin by getting our worldview right, basically. Yeah. He's really interested in identity, how Christians form as disciples, how we juggle multiple identities and multiple communities. And he wants to talk about interpersonal encounter and the things we learn from other human beings and things we learn about ourselves, a kind of a constant openness to learning as opposed to this kind of, uh, really, when you look back on it, a very proud and often pseudo-intellectual kind of sorting of all reality according to these categories, you know? Yes. You know, and so there's some intellectual genealogy in the book, and there's there's a, a proposal, which I'm sure he'll develop further in some other works, on how do we think about our identity and our formation as disciples in some better ways? 
Yeah. That sounds really interesting. I, I might need to get a copy of that book. The final book to to consider here is is yours after evangelicalism. And and you make an argument that essentially it's not the Bebbington quadrilateral, but it's it, it started as a way, as you said, to evangelicalism was supposed to ride a middle line between fundamentalism on the one hand and mainline liberal theology on the other hand. But what ended up happening is just a repackaging of fundamentalism. So motivate that argument for us. You actually, this is historically traceable. The National Association of Evangelicals and other parachurch organizations were born in the 1940s during World War II. The the context of World War II was important. After the bruising fundamentalist modernist fights of the 1910s and 1920s, and then the crisis years of the 30s, then you get into World War II. By the way, this also helped to contribute to the worldview language because the sense that massive worldviews were clashing, you know, communism, fascism, Christianity, et cetera, uh, was very prevalent at the time. Anyway, so the evangelicals tended to be, those who ended up being called evangelicals, at first they were called neo-fundamentalists, and then they were called neo-evangelicals, and then they were called evangelicals. They picked, or were given, but mainly they picked this term from the past to say, we want to be gospel Christians who are about the good news of Jesus, who avoid the theological drift of the liberals and the, and the hard-bitten separatism of the fundamentalists. Uh, and they wanted to build a coalition of like-minded people. They wanted to weaken fundamentalism by taking some of the best, you might say, out of it. And they also wanted to weaken the mainline by attracting the more conservative theological folks who were in churches like the United Methodist Church and so on. And they succeeded in in many ways. They also were institution builders. They built things like Fuller Seminary and uh, Christianity Day Magazine and the National Association of Evangelicals and things like that. They also managed to gain the loyalty of a lot of older institutions that had been there all along, like Wheaton College was way before this, but, you know, Wheaton College became a flagship evangelical school, right? Initially, they had been fundamentalist, and their, their faith statement is really quite fundamentalist, actually. So it was, a, at one level, it was a, um, a, a, a American Christianity political project. At another level, it was a missionary project because they wanted to affect post-war America and, you might say, bring America back to God um, or, or help to shape a, a pious post-World War II America on an evangelical paradigm. Right. But the theology was always thin. And my conclusion, uh, Isaac Sharp in his dissertation called The Other Evangelicals, which I think I also mentioned that article, shows that that essentially if if the founding kind of inerrantist fundamentalism from a conservative white guy social location was ever challenged, those challenges were beaten back just time after time. Right. So it wasn't just a rebranding of fundamentalism. It was a retaining of conservative white guy hegemony over the theological conversation. Yeah. And so what I what I argue in the book is that after 80 years of this, we need to deconstruct that story of the, I mean, the, the history and, and, and who evangelicals are. But there's also a lot of people, and I said this as a pastor, who are unable to stay in that identity or that community because of some of the manifest problems of it. They're stuck or they've been driven out. I use the image of a maze, you know, they're stuck in the maze, they can't get out, or they're in a post 
fundamentalist or post-evangelical space, so they don't know how to reconstruct the faith on the other side. And so the book is partly deconstructive, but it's mainly constructive, proposing ways to think about scripture and method and, you know, and theo theological and moral questions from, um, from at least my version of a post-evangelical theology. Yeah, and I want to put a pin in that because that's where we're going to end our conversation today is, is on the constructive side and how and, and in what specific ways you have retained Jesus despite all of these um, criticisms of American Christianity. It strikes me around that issue, there's different ways of thinking about fundamentalism, right? So it was interesting to, to hear that statement of like, we don't want to be separatists like the fundamentalists. And in that sense, evangelicalism is definitely distinct. I think in psychological terms, I interviewed Pete Hill about his co-authored book, The Psychology of Religious Fundamentalism, and their model essentially boiling down to, is anything from outside allowed to come in and have any bearing on the way we read and interpret the text? And if so, you're not a fundamentalist, and if not, you are a fundamentalist. Mm. So if we only use scripture and the absolute truths as we understand them from the Bible to, to look at each other, and that's the way we do our discernment, that's fundamentalism psychologically. In that sense and in the separatism sort of social, social interaction sense, I see a real distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists. But theologically, I can never seem to find the actual distinction. I mean, uh, recently Driscoll, hi, him quoting him, you know, it, quotes from him have made their way onto the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast being like, dude, I'm just a fundamentalist. And I think about Chuck Smith, who founded Calvary Chapel, and he very much was not a separatist socially. He was fine with having, you know, barefoot hippies come into his church. But theologically, he's a no cards, no drinking, you know, like straight up Bible thumping fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's just kind of a little bit of my thought process around how we even disentangle these terms of fundamentalism and evangelicalism. What do you, do you have any response to that? I think that evangelicalism could be understood as a mild softening of both the separatism and the closed posture towards other ways of knowing, right? Yeah. And so, you know, at an evangelical college, we will let you take sociology and read people and we'll let you take psychology and maybe read a little bit of Freud. Right. As long as we tell you all the things that are wrong about their ideas. And right? where it doesn't fit into a Christian worldview. Right, right. right. That, that's very helpful because what I'm, what I'm saying is that the whole history of the evangelical movement, I would say, since its founding has been, if challenged, and Isaac Sharp talks about multiple challenges from, say, Bardianism or from uh, Black evangelicals or from feminist evangelicals or from LGBTQ evangelicals or whatever, right. when challenged, in general, the power brokers, the people at the top of you know, your influencer list, you know, today it'd be people like John Piper or Tim Keller or people like that, right? Yeah. Al Mohler, right? When challenged, they hunker down. Mm. The separatism manifests by excluding the challengers. Yeah. 
And the closeness manifests by stopping up the ears and saying, we don't really have anything to learn, you know, from your critique. Yeah. You see this around the, the conversation around deconstruction on like gospel coalition, even Christianity today, that it's like, well, it's all well and good as long as you basically come back to the core tenets of what you had before or what we think, how we define biblical Christianity or whatever. Right. Right. It's like. Yeah, but ultimately we're not we don't think that anything fundamentally has to change. And in that sense it's a fortress mentality, right? It's like which is more fundamentalist. Yeah. And less pluralist. It's like, hey, these God has given us the truth and our job is not to reinterpret it. And that um, is essentially a fundamentalist perspective. That's right. Gary Dorian, a friend of mine who teaches at Union, did a book among his many, many books, it's called The Remaking of Evangelical Theology. It was written in the 90s. And Dorian, you know, in his exhaustive way, uh, looks at some of the, like, reformist voices in what now looks something like the heyday of evangelicalism. Um, I mean, people, I don't know, like Clark Pinnock, you know, people who who were in the fold who began raising some questions. The, the history of Fuller Seminary, by the way, is very instructive along these lines. Um, oh, yeah. You know, began raising some questions. What does inerrancy really mean and does it really hold up, you know? Or, you know, what about some of the the less savory dimensions of our racist history or whatever? And, but, but Dorian focuses on the theology. But he ends up concluding, as I recall, that there has not really been an ability to, to sustain dissenting voices within evangelicalism. The tendency is for people to be pushed out. Yeah. And that was my experience. Um, it's been the experience of a lot of people. And, you know, a founding part of my story is I identified as a progressive evangelical for a long time. And there were people who you thought of in that category, older generation, people like Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo and Ron Sider. Yeah. Young, younger generation, people like Shane Claiborne. Right. And then, of course, you had all the dissenting uh, female evangelicals and black evangelicals and so on. But if you look at the last 10 years, Almost all such people have either been renounced by the evangelicals or, or have had to walk away because there's just no space for them. And I'm an example of that, you know. So I think that evangelicalism never really learned to think differently than its fundamentalist forebears. It was a softer, softer presentation. But when push came to shove, the same patterns prevailed. We don't have to go down this road, but just to, to think out loud. I think you might find it interesting where my mind is going is like, is that a kind of a hard psychological limit? Basically, like I interviewed some some baby boomers uh, last summer around their experience of joining the church in the Jesus movement and expecting the end times. And mm-hmm. so we ended up talking about biblical literalism and fundamentalism, right? And there was a sense in which then that I think is true now, and th- these guys were quoting, uh, I think multiple people said this from the 70s and 80s, that it was like, well, if one of the two options takes the text at face value, then that's the one that seems more Christian. That's the one that is to be preferred by default. And you'd have to marshal a pretty complicated argument for the other one that is going against the plain sense reading of something. And that is literally fundamentalism. I mean, that's like, (laughs) that's a pretty good definition of fundamentalism is in my translated language, I have something that is true on its plain sense. 
That's fundamentalism. And yeah, I don't know if I don't know if that's hardwired, if that's the same thing as basically a Japanese mother saying to her child, no, we're going to keep up the shrine to grandpa the way that our family has. Like, I don't know if that's the same thing, basically, that it's just conservatism, capital C, neurological conservatism, traditionalism, capital T, cultural. Tradi- I don't know. Uh, that's that's an open question for me. I have an article out today in Baptist News Global where I describe experiences recently that I've been having with Catholic traditionalism. And it is in, it is something of enduring appeal to human beings. Yeah. And Catholic traditionalism in the U.S. looks to me to be surging. Yeah. And I talk about, you know, what I, you know, what I've seen when I visited these, these churches. So I think traditionalism is, is a permanent option, a permanent default possibility in human wiring. And we'll always have, it will always have institutional expressions, always. So really briefly, do you feel tension between these, you know, what is it? Seven alternate expressions or, or explanations that we've gone through. Can, can most of these be true at the same time? You know, this is a little bit of a weedsy question, but I think it's worth asking because they do come at it from so many different angles. I don't sense attention. If our imagined central figure, <laughs> our imagined hegemon is a socially, politically, and theologically conservative group of white men in America. Hmm. Okay, so picture picture in your mind 12 such people gathering around a table, right? And they, they do sometimes, right? And, and, they, and they release things like the Nashville Statement. <laughs> right, right. And it's what has emerged from their moral and theological and political imagination. Right. I do think... I would say that the political side has evolved a little bit more. I think that the fateful decision was made in the 70s with the the marrying of a U.S. evangelical Christian mission to the Republican Party. Yeah. When that was done, it set a path for whatever the Republicans deliver up, evangelicals are going to buy, even if it's Donald Trump. Yeah, and I think that we a lot of us thought that 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 there would be a limit there, but I personally credit, and of course, there's again there are various analyses here, but I credit things like Fox News, which I think does more spiritual formation than church attendance mm-hmm. does for sure for people yeah. because people spend more time with it. Yeah, and and I, the other big thing I always credit is parallel institutions of evangelical Christianity that allow people to live in an entirely evangelical bubble for almost all aspects of their lives, especially if they live in certain parts of the country. Yeah. Uh, but even in California, I had a pretty, I had I certainly had friends who lived in an entirely evangelical bubble. Yeah. And I, my parents were a little more open to things because my dad was a therapist and, you know, stuff like that. But that, that those kind of forces made have made it such that there was essentially no limit. As long as the GOP, literally all Trump really had to do at least before I recognize people have a legitimate claim when they say, look, I voted again in 2020 for him because he actually did a bunch of the things that my group cares about. 
like bizarrely caring about Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and, and right. stuff like that. You right. know, I whatever. He he did do things for his core constituency. But in 2016, all he did was say some stupid catchphrases. Mm-hmm. He yeah. had done nothing and there was no evidence that he would do anything. Right. You know, and so like that is that's the stunning one to me is the 2016 one. And that's the yeah. one of like, yeah, it just was uh it had so much power, more than most of us thought it had. Yeah, I, I do think that Trumpism and its uh, and Fox and what has happened in Trump-oriented evangelical and fundamentalist churches has actually worsened all of these problems over the last four or five years. Yeah. So, so it's not Agreed. static. It's uh, having studied Nazism as my dissertation. I wrote a dissertation on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. It doesn't take long for a politician to change a country, Hmm. right? If he or she is compelling enough to enough people. And tap into, you know, the right stuff at the right time. Right. So it it was easy to, to, to joke about Trump as some kind of buffoon. He's not a buffoon. He's an incredibly shrewd, I would say diabolically shrewd politician in terms of reaching this constituency. Yeah. And so, he has made everything worse. So I'll give you two main examples. One is what has happened to the Republican Party in terms of their interest in doing any real legislating. Mm-hmm. Another is the growing uh, threats and endorsement of political violence. And well, the third would be, I think, a, a rank, let's just say a weakening to, to democratic norms and processes themselves. Nobody, I don't think anybody really could have predicted in 2015 that he would help to usher in routine threats of political violence, the undermining of democratic norms and institutions at a real fundamental level, and a Republican Party with no interest in legislating about anything maybe other than cultural wars issues. He is the number one force, not the only force, in that deterioration. So I think it's important to have a kind of a dynamic rather than a static understanding of Trump as of 2016 versus Trump as of 2020 versus Trump as of now, the reality has evolved and just keeps getting worse, in my opinion. I want to talk a little bit about Europe before we end on alternate views of Jesus and how to maintain Jesus in as we escape the fray here. But I'm really interested in the sort of US-Europe connections around Christianity. I'm wondering, like, do you think that something will eventually happen here like it did in Europe after World War II when, as I understand it, the percentage of practicing Christians plummeted in the in the wake of that, you know, incredible devastation and evil and the camps and the complicity of the Catholic Church and the German Protestant Church in mm-hmm. the camps. That was like such a continental trauma. We haven't had anything that stark here and by a lot of analyses that I, th- I think hold academic rigor, the church, uh, the non-denominational church is actually growing in America. Uh, and I believe that is gains basically on the right. That sort mm-hmm. of less religious sociopolitical Republicans are like reconnecting with church because now the whole packet, well, they have their various reasons as individuals, but right. uh, zooming out, the whole package has become more Christian. And so maybe I'll mm-hmm. go back to church. They all love Trump and they're, we're all reading Drudge Report together. And so I guess I'll go back to worship. <laughs> you know, like, so in one sense, it's growing in absolute numbers. And on the left, it's, of course, being decimated and in, in, in the center, 
maybe some mix. So I don't know. Th this is an open prompt. I know you've thought about this stuff a lot more than me. I'm, I'm just curious about all of it. It's a good. It's a good question. I think that the religious situation, religio political situation here right now, reminds me a little bit of pre-war France and pre-war Germany. That is 1920s and 30s, mm -hmm. because you still had a lot of Christians. And a deep spirit of embattlement that secularization and democratization and modernization and liberalization was a threat. This is what I think I'm going to try to unpack in this, in this inaugural address, which will be my next book, by the way. And so you had enough Christians that if they were willing to buy into right-wing ideology, they could be a bulwark for neo-fascist or fascist kind of politics, right? Yeah. And they helped to take France, the Vichy part of France, uh, and the Nazi part of Germany right over the cliff. So on the other side, you have death camps and war and the complete discrediting of everybody who played along and was a part of that. And also just the disillusionment of all of that death and destruction that helped to contribute to the rapid ex uh, acceleration of secularization in Europe. So I think our situation is more like pre-World War II Europe than it is like post-World War II Europe. So if what we were brought up to believe was about the cross, about the Bible, about sharing our faith and shaping a better world, and about being converted into the body of Christ, but it was actually about essentially white male power, holding, power holders keeping that power and keeping it in line with a racist, patriarchal, white male view of the world. And if you can come at that from seven different angles and find really compelling evidence for all seven, what the f is left, David? <laughs> I mean, way, that's I the stark way to say it. Yeah. Do I hear a baby in the background, Dane? Uh, you hear, you, you might hear a little bit of my uh, one-year-old, yeah, behind uh, the door. I hear that. I love one-year-olds. So, um... I'm a grandpa myself. Uh, I think I think you know the the real human drama here is that this evangelical thing was both. Mm. It was both earnest Christians trying to follow Jesus, hard lines related to the power structures and the way things were going to develop. Right. So I mean, it was both, and not every community was the same. Some were more open-minded, some were more right. closed, or whatever. Right. So what's left is a need to repent of all that crap that got imported into what we knew of as white Christianity, especially white evangelical Christianity, and the hope that with the help of people who are not captive to that subculture, that we might be able to chart a better way forward. You know, yeah. so it's, it's a, a self-humbling and it's spending an awful lot of time with, you know, black Christians and, you know, Christians from around the world uh, who have not been in the middle of such power structures. You know, nothing has been more instructive for me than hanging out with LGBTQ Christians and uh, seeing their their wounds and what they have to teach about a better kind of Christianity. You know, women who have been told repeatedly they're not allowed to be who they believe God's calling them to be. So it's a a deep repentance 
and a, uh, a willingness to finally descend to a position of equality with other Christians and other human beings to learn alongside and to chart a better way forward and to look for, I think, resources from dissenting traditions. It's the Anabaptists, it's the Black Church tradition, it's James Baldwin and Howard Thurman and liberation theology and, you know, sometimes queer theology and feminist thought, and it's everybody who will destabilize this power configuration that that helped to dominate the world in which in which we were uh, in which we cut our teeth, and being willing to to come alongside, not have to be in charge, and to share a place at the table. Um, and to learn some new ways of being Christian. Yeah, one of your previous books is called Still Christian, and the subtitle is Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism. And so I, I want to ask about the picture of Jesus that has emerged for you as an ethicist and as just a, I mean, to some degree, you're a multidisciplinary scholar, mm-hmm. even though your training is in ethics. So describe that picture like like what do you think an accurate picture of jesus of nazareth looks like in uh after evangelicalism i name four inadequate versions of jesus i'd like to say that the first is jesus the crucified savior alone and that actually goes right at bevington yeah yeah. because because i think that, that is a tendency in reformational, Pauline-oriented theology that the main Jesus we have is the one who dies on the cross for our sins, right? But then worse than that is what I call essentially a Jesus who wants you to succeed, the yuppie Jesus, the six tips for a successful business life, you know, type Jesus, right? Essentially mark, marketing and self-help Jesus. And then there's the sentimentalized, I call the Hallmark Christmas movie Jesus, you know, Jesus who loves you and wants to hold you and you want to hold and, you know, be your best friend or whatever. And then the most dangerous, and this tracks mostly with what we've been talking about, I call the vacant Jesus who you can fill with any content that you want. The ethno-nationalist Jesus, the warrior Jesus, you know, the ballsy Jesus of uh, that, you know, Kristen Dumay is talking about in her book. Right. And... The Jesus that I try to talk about in in after evangelicalism, I describe him as apocalyptic prophet, lynched son of God, and risen Lord. Apocalyptic prophet, lynched son of God, and risen Lord. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds like it's its own podcast episode, unfortunately. Maybe maybe it is. But, May I just say know. a few words about each of those three, though? Apocalyptic prophet, Jesus was operating out of the Jewish prophetic frame of the kingdom of God is coming in this rebellious, unjust world, and he was the one who was to bring it in. Um, He was also in the prophetic lineage, the lineage of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Micah and Hosea, the lineage of justice and challenging, challenging unjust powers of all types. The one who stood up with the widows, the orphans, the aliens, and the strangers, which is also the legal lineage of, of Torah as well, right? And this kingdom of God apocalyptic prophet gets lynched in the sense that he has a sham trial in which he's thrown up on a cross, a sham overnight trial. Yeah. And he is crucified naked at a garbage dump outside the city. And so this also teaches us something about where Jesus is located. He's he's in the garbage dumps and the shanty towns and the 
the places of powerlessness and victimization. And yet, I believe in the resurrection and the Christian doctrinal claim that Jesus was raised from the dead and is Lord, and that Christians are those who follow his way and a way that he taught and a way that he modeled, a way of justice and of kingdom work and of love of neighbor and enemy and of challenging unjust power. By the way, that has almost nothing to do with the version of religion we've been talking about for two hours, right? It's, I know. It's, it, it's so refreshing, though. <laughs> it's sort of like uh, I really hope people made it to the end of the episode. And, and I and I know that most people do uh, for this show, for Trip Fuller's show. You know, people do tend to get to the end, but I really hope they made it because, like, it is kind of like water in a desert, mm-hmm. you know, after uh, talking about all these thoroughly compromised versions yeah. of Christianity. So, you know, this is the the version of Jesus that has motivated many of the heroes that I've taught about and written about, you know, people who stood for racial integration in 1920s Georgia, you know, risked their lives, you know, and uh, people who challenged colonialism when it was tor- torturing and murdering indigenous peoples around the world and so on. There's always been people in this lineage, but they have never been a majority, uh, especially in the Christendom context of of Europe and then of colonial uh, Christianity. And so we need, I think maybe a good final word is that biblicism is not enough. It's a specific vision of Jesus. And that vision of Jesus has motivated heroic justice work all over the world for two millennia and can continue to do so. We need to disentangle that thing from whatever this thing is uh, that has been called well, evangelicalism that I think is best called white Christian nationism at this point. And hopefully there'll be some lots and lots and lots of Christians and churches that are going to maybe rediscover the real Jesus because this other thing has so little to do with Jesus that it doesn't take a theologian to figure out how much is wrong. Well, you're right. This is a, this is a great place to end. Uh, thank you for ending on a note of hope and uh, a note of yeah, I don't know. It's like a little bit of a, a little bit of a sword to the heart there. That description of Jesus, David. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for going a little long with me. There was, I just didn't want to cut too much out. Just too much sure. good stuff to talk about. I got links to each of your books that we've mentioned, as well as a couple of your articles, and there will be links to all the other books that we discussed here. So a lot of links in the show notes, and uh, thanks to Josh Gilbert for editing this conversation. Um, he's available for additional podcast work. You can find his email in the show notes. And if you'd like to become a patron, patreon.com slash Dan Coke. It's five bucks a month. You get two exclusive episodes per month and access to the patron only Facebook group. Thank you guys for listening to the end. And those of you who made it to the end, I imagine you are very glad that you did, that you slogged through uh, all that bullshit to get to the kernel, the pearl of great price at the end of the rainbow. And I'm just mixing everything up. Okay, David, thank you so much, man. You're very welcome, Dan.